Saying something often is going to be far better than saying nothing. And many just say nothing. Or they send out a short email and there's nothing actually then said about it. Or your managers are left to look answer the questions and they're not given anything. And a lot of people say, well, I, I don't want to, if, it, if it's a more sensitive question, oh, I don't want to take a side on something. Just saying and opening that space, saying things like, we know that this is especially hard right now for senior team members. We want you to know that we are absolutely here. If there are things that you need, if you have a day, you just can't get through it, reaching out to your manager, it will be okay. If you have a new policy, explain the why behind it. My one piece of advice I say is that the CEO should have his executive assistant, him or her, read it and tell them what most people would think about this statement. And listen to what they have to say. That requires a lot of trust. But I guarantee you that that administrative assistant probably has a lot more of inclination into your employee population than you probably do as a leader. Welcome to Lawyers Who Lead, a podcast that challenges the notion that the law lags behind. I'm your host, Seagal Barnes. Each week, I invite a lawyer who's making powerful changes through extraordinary leadership. In each episode, we'll travel through another lawyer's life, identify what they do best, and then devise how to apply these concepts to your own world. So let's get to it. Welcome to Lawyers Who Lead. I'm your host, Seagal Barnes. Our guest today is the founder of Manager Method, a platform offering training and resources to drive productivity and create a positive work atmosphere for managers and employees across different industries. This is a person who is both an experienced lawyer and HR leader who has combined her big law and in-house experience to create a human-first approach to creating better workplaces in the legal industry and beyond. Please welcome our next lawyer who leads, Ashley Hurd. Ashley, welcome to the show. Thank you. So glad to be here. For all of our listeners, I've been following Ashley for like almost two years now on TikTok and was so excited when I saw her on LinkedIn and had to reach out. And I'm just so honored that you're on the show today. So thank you again. Well, you're welcome. It means more than you know to get the invite. <laughs> Wonderful. Well, let's start with our gratitude question first. What is your favorite thing that happened so far today? I love this question because it makes me feel very reflective and some of it is, it's a very beautiful day here in Atlanta and like a leaf flew in front of me. And it reminds me of the scene from like Charlie Brown's Halloween, where it's like fall is coming. And it just reminds me that little signal of the seasons are turning and there's new things to come. And so I take a lot of meaning in some of those very small moments. So seeing that little beautiful golden leaf fall from the tree. I agree. I'm a big seasons fan. Like I love the yep. changing of seasons. It gets us like adaptive to change, but I particularly love that image. That was really cool. So let's get into your lawyer origin story. How did it all start for you? And how did we get to where you are today? I became a lawyer almost by default. I felt like it would be a good idea, and I didn't have a very good reason for that. I literally think it was TV and movies. I didn't have family member, friends that were in the legal profession. Funny enough, now my mother later in life went to law school. My brother, who's in his mid-40s, just started this fall. He works in corporate finance and started part-time law. So I've made law look very appealing. But I, I wanted to be a lawyer and I kind of backed into it. And so I'd worked in corporate sales for a couple of years out of college. I had a liberal arts background in corporate sales. I was cold calling chief financial officers. And then I got promoted. Uh, I was a parent. I, I did well at, th at that with the CF Fortune 1000 CFOs, shockingly. And then I ended up calling on chief human resources officers and meeting with them. And it was in those conversations that I would say, oh, I'm actually going to law school, X, Y, Z. And they'd say, go into employment law. You'll never be lacking for a job. 
in at the time I was 23 living in DC at that point. And so the idea of having potentially perpetual employment was very appealing, but what I really liked was this idea of working with people. And so as a lawyer, I went into employment law, spent about four years in uh, law firms doing a mix of litigation and counseling and really gravitated to the counseling aspect, especially the proactive aspect of it. I, I did not like litigation. A lot of those litigators listening will know what that can feel like. In the U.S. in particular, uh, employers have a very good track record of winning in litigation. But I found even when you win, you're in a situation where someone's brought a claim because they feel like they were treated unfairly or didn't get what was owed to them. And so that that win, from my personal perspective, never felt like it. What I really enjoyed was counseling. So I spent about a decade in-house in legal and then taking on uh, HR kind of by luck of the draw. And really getting to that proactive aspect really stuck with me. And so over time, we we lived back in, in Atlanta, but we'd lived back in Kentucky, where I'm from for a bit, had lived abroad in Australia. And some of this was trying to figure out, some of those had to make, had to force to make career pivots. And so I always had this idea of then helping managers have difficult conversations to get back beyond or really get ahead of litigation or these legal type of, of issues and really help to train managers on working with people. And so it took me a few years to get into it, but that was my origin story behind manager method. So I bought the domain and had the logo years before, which has now iterated however many times, but I had all that years before I actually did the work. So that is my origin story. I love that. I find it interesting that you had the manager method for a while and then you then you like kind of had to pull the trigger eventually because you you knew it was time. When did you know, OK, this is the time for me to make this transition? It was actually when I gotten by far the biggest job of my career on paper. And this is why I tell people sometimes this idea of like the LinkedIn test. Like if you have a job and you're so excited about telling everybody about it or having the business card or having it. But when you think about doing the work, you just in your heart of hearts think that's not really me then sometimes that might be your signal that there may truly be something else for you. And it can be really hard to make that. So for me, uh, I was working for uh, McKinsey, which is a global uh, consulting firm. I was on their, their legal team. But after a, a year, I actually become their head of North American HR. I've transitioned to, to North American HR. I'd stepped in and was transitioning into that role when all I could think of was like, people are never going to believe it. When I put this on my LinkedIn, this is wild. And I grew up in Kentucky, did not have a family of lawyers, did not go to a, a Ivy League school far from it. Although I, Center College is the, the Harvard of the South, we call it in Kentucky. But I, this, it was all the feelings of imposter syndrome. But what was really sitting with me was I had this idea two years before that, that I was in Australia and I always wanted to do it and I just didn't. And so I was sharing with someone who was on my team and saying, one day I want to have this company. And this woman who, who'd worked at the firm for her whole career, and was very experienced. She looked and she was like, but why wouldn't you just do that now? Like, I can give you about seven reasons and they have to do with like, now I'm on this job and I don't even know if I feel like I deserve this. But it really stuck with me. And I, as I thought about it, it's like this idea of starting manager method is what I'm meant to do. And there were a lot of emotions beneath the surface, probably a lot of Kleenex and you know anxiety. My poor family probably had to listen to it a lot, but it was sometimes getting that big job and then thinking, I don't know, this is me. I think there's something else I'm meant to do that's that seems a lot smaller, but for me has a bigger impact. It was getting to what otherwise I would have thought would have been my career peak and me looking around and saying, I feel like I, I really feel like I could do something else. And so that was what really got me 
starting manager method in earnest and saying, okay, now this is time. I think that's really important. One of the things that I see a lot when I talk to varying lawyers who end up transitioning to something else or law adjacent, there is this realization to look beyond the title or to ask yourself, was this really something I always wanted and why? So I think it's really wonderful for listeners to think about that as well as they think about their job satisfaction or the impact that they're making is look beyond the title. The title actually doesn't mean much. It actually is, are you doing the work that you want to do? I feel especially one of the benefits was like growing up, we certainly did not have a ton. And so for me, I've learned, especially having lived abroad in Australia, like that changed me quite a bit to to realize the idea of having friendships and living outside and in creating this life that I haven't been driven by just making the most money, for example. And I think it can be really easy to get in that trap. Don't get me wrong. I've had student loans, like I've had student loans and had to make choices based on that. But sometimes that chart that you may have seen times that says what people think you should care about, you know, half salary, half job title. But then what really matters is all the things of satisfaction. Sometimes we're not in the position and you just have to focus on what you have to do to have that job and sustain your personal life, your family's life potentially. But if you take a step back and think about what am I doing day to day and what, where do I want to be at the end of my career and feel fulfilled, sometimes you may be honest with yourself that the path you're on, it may be a little different. And sometimes it's not a huge tweak. Everybody is not designed to start their own company. And I can tell you that having from done it, duh, duh, duh. But, <laughs> but if you look looking around and just looking at ways of doing things differently, sometimes can be really rewarding, even if there's a lot of emotions in the middle. Agreed. I can't not ask you about this because you said that it really changed your life. Tell me, why did you move to Australia? What what was that about? Every single person I knew that went to Australia moved for the same reason. That was like my husband's job. And so for <laughs> me, it was my husband's job to sound very um, 1950s. But my husband at the time had worked for a company called Corporate Executive Board, acquired by Gartner while we lived in Australia. He had the opportunity to go with his job. And we said, yes, absolutely. And then backed into it. I, I just moved into the leadership level of an in-house job. It was professionally the worst thing I could have done at that point in time. But we decided for our family, our kids were two and five, we'll fig- we will figure it out. And the logistics were a, a real challenge. I The difference was I was one of the only people I knew that of, of Americans and expats that went there that w- was working. And so I ended up rejoining a prior company. So when I became a general counsel, living abroad, starting work at 4.30 in the morning, Tuesday through Saturday, because of the time change, I was an original business on top, pajama pants on bottom on Zoom. <laughs> but we decided to do it basically for our family. And while there were a lot of sacrifices we made in doing so, I would have done it a million times over. I really resonated with Australia, with our whole experience. And so another thing of when people are like, oh, I feel like I could never do that. Like, we probably on paper should not have done that because we were very established. We'd, we were living near my parents. We had, I had an incredibly steady job. I gave up a lot of things professionally to do that. But again, I've this is it helped me eventually decide to start my business because I thought I've made some crazy choices before, but we it really was transformational for me and for our whole family. That's awesome. And and I agree. I think that every kind of risk that we take, obviously calculated and educated, but like risks that we take, whether they're like small and incremental, help us gain more and more confidence in the larger things that we're doing. So I love that. The Australia experience actually helped feed into the larger risk of starting your own business as well. So that's cool. 
I love that because I bet you feel the same with like the podcast. Like when you Mm -hmm. first started it, I have to imagine that in your mind, you had those questions of, will people listen? Like the fear that goes, but then building it up as well. I have to imagine. Absolutely. I mean, it's so gratifying once it starts to take off. Um, But the, but the narrative that I try to tell myself whenever I start anything new that I'm worried about is like, this discomfort is a good thing. It means that you're trying something new and it's okay if it doesn't work out. I am not a surgeon. If a podcast doesn't work out, it'll be fine. Um, Hopefully no one will die, right? And so I remind myself that I am lucky to be able to do these kind of risks in a way that's pretty low impact from a life or death situation. So I just remind myself of the larger picture when it comes to that. I love that. I love the idea of giving yourself advice like you would a friend. And that's yeah. what you would want to tell a friend in that situation. Sometimes you have to say it to yourself like 37 times. Oh, yeah. But, but I, I love that because I do think those incremental choices, all they all add up and they make you more empowered to make the big choices when you really need it. Absolutely. You also said a few minutes ago that one of the things that really inspired you or that you really wanted to do when you went out on your own was to help people and empower them to have difficult conversations. So why difficult conversations specifically? One of the things I saw in the law in particular, you have litigation, someone saying, I feel like I was discriminated against, retaliated against, harassed at work. And whether someone has what they call direct evidence, meaning you have actual proof or what often happens this feels different. I feel like I'm treated otherwise. Whatever that spectrum is, is this idea of people that feel like they were treated wrongly. And an organization may be defending and saying what we did was legally fine. And again, as I say, it's that 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 disconnect. And I'm like, God, legal bills are so expensive. The litigation process is terrible. I say every manager should have to sit through a deposition at some point in time. And let me tell you, they will think very differently about every decision that they make because of what that is like when your emails, your life is literally put for all to see, like Michael Scott in the office with his journal. But I think it's a really eye-opening process. But for me, one thing that really resonated is I truly have worked in all levels of the corporate ladder. And as I rose, I just had a bad taste in my mouth, but it always rubbed me the wrong way, how it felt like people have command this level of respect. And the people that often do the hardest work in any organization, your frontline workers, even your first-line supervisors, that frequently they may be taken for granted. And just this idea of like, well, this is what the policy is going to be, or this is the decision that's going to be. And there's not thought about how that's going to impact them. When you look at the leaders in an organization, you know, I think about like if a VP or a C-level executive is coming to town, it's like the, the mice scurrying around to get everything ready because you're always focused on what the leadership thinks, but there's not as much thought about what everyone in the organization. And in that, I saw from litigation, one person, one of your frontline workers could end up creating a real time and expense for you as an employer, but they also could have feelings that make them feel disrespected, unseen, and Sometimes people on social media will call me a softy, but for me, I think this idea of, of human resources, which I don't even love the name, but this idea of being a conduit between decisions that impact employees is being human first and having difficult conversations. Why I think that's important is because frequently the choice is made to not say anything at all. Well, I'm not going to say anything about their performance. I don't want to hurt their feelings. I'll just bring it up in a performance review five months from now. And that's super weird and off-putting in a lot of other words. But it just feels badly at the time. And so helping managers to understand like difficult conversations can look like a lot of things, but having that in clear communication and thinking about if you made a mistake or you weren't doing what was expected, you would want someone ideally to have that conversation with you. How can you do that in a way that's heard? And it's just a step that it does not happen enough. And so that's why I say I want to use my career quilt, having been 
in the legal landscape, also having worked in HR and having worked in a lot of really different industries, it was really important for me to create a platform to spread that message that a lot never hear. Like, oh, I never thought of it that way. Okay, well, that's why I just go and post a lot of content to try to help people that, that need to hear that message. I think the, one of the worst things that can happen is an employee at a performance review hearing that they're not performing for the first time. It should be as it happens, right? You're giving right. like those responses. I was curious, are there specific rhythms that you would recommend um, so that both the employee and the employer have a space that they can consistently relay that kind of information? Yes, I really think that having your direct report, having a one-on-one conversations and having that regularly scheduled time, what that can look like can be very different. If you're in a corporate type environment, that might be 30 minutes, once a week, once every two weeks. I really think more than every two weeks can make it hard. Sometimes managers have a lot of direct reports. That's why I generally recommend having 10 or less is a good idea. But but having that, if you're in an on-your-feet type environment, you're not going to be sitting around a conference table. So it may just be pre-shift, post-shift huddle, more regular check-ins. But so having that ongoing and also having an agenda that is a shared agenda that each person can add things into. And so that can help managers understand what employees are actually working on. Employees often think their manager knows and they don't. Managers often think, well, if an employee has issues, they'll come to me. And so there's just a lot of gaps. But also then driving conversations to that one-on-one, like substantive performance conversations as much as possible, but not having it be a surprise. So if, like I say, if someone did a presentation and someone, it was like a super wordy presentation someone gave and everyone's just like reading from the screen, Saying afterwards, like, yeah, that I think a lot of people were paying attention to your slides as opposed to you because they could just read everything. But I wanted in our next one-on-one, let me get some examples. We can go through some slides. And so you're planning that flag. So it's still not a surprise a week and a half later when you have the conversation, because otherwise it just seems weird that, that no one brought it up. But so planning the flag, letting them know you'll have that conversation. To me, that's the, the motion that I think can be really helpful is getting a sense of driving things to that one-on-one so that you know, manager and the team member, that substantive feedback is going to happen and then calling attention to things in the meantime. There are also difficult conversations that don't necessarily happen one-on-one, but more from a leadership position that's announcing things to the entire company, right? Versus on a one-on-one basis. Can you speak to those kind of conversations? I know actually in a lot of your videos, you have this kind of format in which you're advising a COO or a CFO or CEO, someone in the leadership position on how to, let's say, tackle something that's happening in the world or tackle a new policy. What are some of the recommendations around that? Saying something often is going to be far better than saying nothing. And many just say nothing. Or they send out a short email and there's nothing actually then said about it. Or your managers are left to look answer the questions and they're not given anything. And a lot of people say, well, I, I don't want to, if, it, if it's a more sensitive question, oh, I don't want to take a side on something. Just saying and opening that space, saying things like, we know that this is especially hard right now for senior team members. We want you to know that we are absolutely here. If there are things that you need, if you have a day, you just can't get through it, reaching out to your manager, it will be okay. Also, we have things like an employee assistance program, especially in the US where so many um, medical benefits are generally through the employer as opposed to the rest of the world. Some people don't know even what benefits they have. An employee assistance program is is really underutilized. I think the statistic is, I just looked this up the other day, it's about 96% of medium to large size organizations have one. More small organizations need that. What that is often is having access to counseling, either very reduced cost or often free counseling resources for employees, their uh, spouse, partner, 
their dependents, whether you participate in benefits or not. Many people have no idea the success that are eligible because 96% of medium and large size organizations have them, 4% utilize them. And that's active count. That's actual counseling. And so then I say to, to telling managers, show employees how to plug the number in your phone, give them the website, explain what that looks like and give managers those talking points so they're not trying to come up with it on their own. But that's how you actually drive utilization of support. But but speaking up, or like I say, if you have a new policy, explain the why behind it. This morning, I, I recorded a video on policies of not wearing headphones at work. I can't tell you how many comments I got right away. They're like, oh my gosh, my organization no headphones, no head, no headphones. And and I say like having a policy like that. First of all, think about why, and then ex- explain it. But then talk to talking about it in advance. Anytime an organization's making policies or putting out a statement. My one piece of advice I say is that the CEO should have his executive assistant, him or her, they read this, read it and tell them what most people would think about this statement and listen to what they have to say. That requires a lot of trust. But I guarantee you that that administrative assistant probably has a lot more of inclination into your employee population than you probably do as a leader. And so that's one aspect. And again, maybe not just having your one person you ask, but having some of that and have this sounding board of people that are empowered to tell you the honest feedback and getting that from that small group before you see it on the internet or employer branding sites, I, I think can be information that a lot of leaders just don't take the time to get. Excellent advice. So what does leadership in law mean to you? It is truly putting that human first of recognizing that you are human and showing humility and looking and thinking about the human aspect of every decision and what's going on in people's lives is true leadership. What is something that other lawyers seem to misunderstand about the work that you do? That it's fluff, like, like oh, t- talk nicely. At the end of the day, we, all, we only have so much time, but how important you can put a decision out there, how things are communicated and what thought is behind it often is more important than than the what. And so discounting that human element is at many lawyers' peril. If there was one thing you could change about the legal industry, what would it be? The pressure to be the race to reply first, like that everything is is so urgent. I think it creates a lot of stress, a lot of churn, and a lot of people sacrificing much of their personal life. And so this idea that emergencies, rarely true emergencies happen. And if you take a bit of time that your number one value shouldn't be being available, at at least not from a sustainability perspective, but a lot of clients need to understand that as well. Yes. Which structures would you recommend to put into place to help move that along in the right direction? One thing I have, I literally had put when I, I really now doing HR training, but I was doing legal work with manager method. And one thing I put in my engagement letters is a paragraph that says that my normal response hours are this, my response times. And I literally include language that says, I practice what I preach and I, I recharge. And so if it's a truly urgent situation, I might not be the right counsel for you if, if you need 24-7 availability. I will have conversations with people and I'd say, I'd probably challenge that. If there's something, if there's a true people emergency, like God, go call 911, probably not me. But it's, it is it is that to say, I practice what I preach and I take the time to recharge. And having the relationships and the confidence to be able to say something like that, if you would have told me you know, as a first-year lawyer, if I would have said, try to say that to partners, oh my God, I can't even fathom. But over time, I communicate to, to, to people, you know, if I, also, I'm a more valuable uh, advisor to you if I take a step back and really think about things rather than feeling like I need to rush just so you can be like, oh, that Ashley, she's like a, a bot. What are some of the questions that someone that's interviewing at a company, but they want to ask questions of the company to gauge the actual culture around that? 
What would yeah. be a good question that they could ask? I think asking things like, what are your team norms and expectations? And some people will hear that and be like, oh God, Ashley, corporate speak. But I think asking that in the way that's most comfortable to you, that also resonates most in that experience. But getting a sense of like, how does the team co- collaborate? And what's the tenure of the team? And how does the team leverage their expertise and continue to to build it while also building sustainable careers so that they they look forward to coming to work on, on Mondays. And I think asking it in that way can give a sense because also if people are like, I, I, ooh, I don't know about that. You, you can always read between the tea leaves. And I've talked to people that will say I'm available and I'm compensated accordingly. And that doesn't. And that if you don't care, then that's t- completely fine. But I do think a lot of people sacrifice their personal life and don't realize it until far too late how much they wish they'd changed it earlier in their career. Absolutely. What is a piece of practical advice you can give to our listeners? These are leaders and future leaders in law. My advice in situations is anytime you're about to make any decision, you don't need to have a whole rubric of things, but just stop and think, what might I want to have happen to me in this situation? And it doesn't mean everybody's not going to be like you, but sometimes adding that framing, especially in the legal profession, someone makes a mistake, someone does something. If you did that, would you want your boss to be coming in hot to you and and frustrated? And how would that small interaction, how could that impact your overall relationship with them? And so stop and thinking, okay, have I ever been in this situation? Or if I haven't, what would I want? Often it's asking a question instead of coming in hot. Mm. And so that's one thing that I think can be helpful to keep in mind as opposed to a sea of trying to think through like 25 rules before any interaction. Final question. What do you do for self-care? I have a dog I've now had for four years. She just turned four. And it is really helpful for me that we go outside and take these walks. So that's how I see the leaf falling from the sky. So for my self-care, it is having to take a break, even if if I normally would just plow right through. And I had never had a puppy before in my life. And let me tell you, it is, she loves, she loves me and believes in me even, but even more sometimes than my family, I think like she thinks I can do no wrong. And so sometimes it's nice to have that kind of belief constantly. She's literally below my feet right now, but to have that kind of support. And so my dog Rosie has brought me more self-care than I could have even brought myself. Ah, I love that. What a great way to end. Ashley, thank you so much for being on the show. If anyone that's listening wants to reach out and connect with you, what's the best way they can do that? You can go to my site, managermethod.com. You can find me on the socials, managermethod.com. And you can listen to our new podcast, hrbesties.com, which is about HR and manager tips as well with two of my co-hosts. Thank you, leaders and future leaders, for listening today. We have a new guest every week, so don't forget to join us next week. If you enjoyed this episode, subscribe or follow us anywhere you listen to your favorite podcasts. You can also follow at Lawyers Who Lead on social. Let's celebrate and continue to build a community of leaders in law together. Lawyers Who Lead is made possible by Lawline, the leading online platform for lawyers who want engaging, relevant CLE and professional growth content. For over 20 years, Lawline has helped hundreds of thousands of attorneys level up by providing award-winning courses in hard-to-find areas and high-demand fields. They have so many courses to choose from that are actually really interesting to listen to and watch. That's why Lawline's rated the highest in the industry, with almost five stars and over a 1,000 verified reviews on Trustpilot. Lawyers who lead listeners get $100 off Lawline's unlimited annual subscription, which means you can take as many courses as you want for a really good price. Just visit lawline.com slash podcast to get the special offer. Check out Lawline for the best content for leaders and future leaders in legal.